0: Hey there, welcome to Live Wire. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. This week on the show, we are talking to the writer Isaac Fitzgerald. He wrote the New York Times bestselling memoir, Dirtbag Massachusetts. And in it, he talks about his very unconventional and often difficult childhood, including how he and his friends deeply misunderstood the point of the film Fight Club, and also how his perspective on his parents' fraught marriage has evolved over time, The book is super honest and revealing about Isaac uh, and his family. You're going to stick around for that. Then we're going to hear some stand-up from the very funny comedian Carmen LaGala on how her love of women's basketball led her to break up a teenage romance via the Internet. All that plus music from No-No Boy. We've got a fascinating show coming up for you, so don't go anywhere. I'll get started right after this. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. How's it going? It's going well. The weather is starting to turn, but this is the good part, right? This is where it's actually like, it's been so hot in the Northwest (laughs) that I'm actually ready for sweater season. Sweater weather. That's right. Are you ready for live wire season? I.e., are you ready to do a little station location identification examination?
2: Does a cardigan feel good against (laughs) your post-summer skin?
0: Sure does. This is... Where I quiz Elena on a place in the country where Livewire is on the radio. She's trying to figure out the place that I am talking about. These are a couple of really great clues. Okay, this place is the seat of the county that produces 95% of all the ginseng exported from the United States. And if you get this one, you can officially retire after this week.
2: I don't even know what ginseng is. Is it mined or grown? Like, I, it looks like, I
0: think it's kind of like a root of some kind.
2: Oh, oh okay.
0: Okay, let me go with uh, hint number two. <laughs> okay, Maybe that'll help. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> it's home to the largest curling facility in the country, like as in the sport, curling. Oh. Now, I'm going to help you. It's not Minnesota. Uh, Fargo, North Dakota. <laughs> uh, a little more over towards Wisconsin.
2: Wisconsin, Wisconsin. Wisconsin. <laughs>
0: That's right. You were thinking of Wausau, Wisconsin, (laughs) where we are on the air on Wisconsin Public Radio. That's right. That's where the ginseng is being exported from, (laughs) I am told by this script in front of me. So shout out to everybody listening in Wausau. Thanks for tuning in to LiveWire. Should we get to the show? Let's do it. All right. Take it away.
2: From PRX, it's LiveWire. This week, writer Isaac Fitzgerald.
3: The things I don't want to write, the things I don't want to talk about, the things that I don't want to look directly at, those are usually where the most important stories are.
2: Stand-up comedian Carmen Legala. I don't know what sport uh, you're a fan of,
4: but what are you doing in the off-season, huh? Are you breaking up children
2: online? With music from No-No Boy and our fabulous house band. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now, the host of LiveWire, Luke Burbank! Hey,
0: thank you so much, Elena Passarello. Thanks to everyone for tuning in all over the country, including in Wausau, Wisconsin. We have a really, really interesting show in store for everyone this week. Of course, we asked the listeners a question like we always do. We asked, tell us something you completely misunderstood as a young person, Uh, And that is because one of our guests this week, Isaac Fitzgerald, he writes in his book about how he and his teenage friends really, really misunderstood that Fight Club, the movie Fight Club, was a satire. (laughs) They just took it as a sign to form their own actual Fight Club. So we're asking the listeners to commiserate about things they didn't quite fully grasp when they were younger. We're going to hear those responses coming up in a little bit. First, though, of course, we've got to start things off with the best news we heard all week. This right here is our little reminder at the top of the show. There is some good news happening somewhere out there in the world. Elena, what is the best news that you heard all week?
2: Okay. Uh, I love this story. It comes from far, far away from where both you and I are, over in okay. Bangalore in India. Oh, wow. I didn't know this about the city of Bangalore uh, But apparently it's just notorious for its traffic. And there's like Mm. a bunch of TikToks about it. And there is a doctor, a gastroenterology surgeon named Govind Nandakumar, who was stuck in this notorious traffic. Unfortunately, he had a surgery to perform a gallbladder operation, and he knew that the patient was prepped and ready. And I don't know from surgery, but sometimes that prep can take days, right? You got to fast or you got to drink something. Mm -hmm. So this person had had probably gone through a lot to get ready for surgery. And Dr. Nanda Kumar also knew that there were a bunch of other patients waiting. And so he just got out of his car and started running. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he ran something like three kilometers, which is a little what? under two miles.
0: In presumably his like doctorly outfit, whatever that looks like.
2: Yeah. In my brain, he's got on like full-on surgical scrubs, which is probably right? not how it works. No, it's probably not very <laughs> like sterile. Like the mask and the little hat and the gloves.
0: It also feels very like this is what happens in a rom-com, except instead of running to tell the person that he loves that he really loves them. He's running to take someone's gallbladder out.
2: Instead of Catherine Heigel, it's a yes. gallbladder. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> the object of his affection. Um, but, you know, uh, this is a pretty impressive uh, member of the medical community. I Absolutely. Uh, 18 years of service, 1,000 wow. successful surgeries, and hopefully only one that he had to sprint toward right. in order to get it done.
0: <laughs> like you're appreciative if the surgeon. Went extra, the extra mile to get there. But then if they're drenched in sweat, you're like, kind of like, well, okay, let's take a minute. Everybody cool down here. But I've got a story actually I saw that's also related to people going above and beyond in the medical community. It involves a recent Spirit Airlines flight that was heading from Pittsburgh, your old stomps, Elena, to Orlando, Florida. And a three month old baby stopped breathing on this flight. Whoa. Just completely stopped breathing. And uh, her parents were, as you might imagine, just absolutely terrified and started just asking if there was a doctor on board or anyone who could help. And luckily there was a nurse sitting a few rows behind them named uh, Tamara Panzino. And she immediately jumped into action. She knew exactly what to do. She um, did basically uh, massage on the baby's chest and legs and got this baby Back to breathing again. Wow. I've seen a video of this, probably on TikTok, don't judge me, where the (laughs) entire plane is in like rapturous applause because this was up near the front of the plane. Can you imagine? Oh, my God. You're on a plane and a baby
2: stops breathing. And the nurse was like seated directly behind them? Like
0: really close to them, close enough that she just jumped right up. Immediately started applying sort of medical care to the baby and got the baby breathing again. The baby, like, takes a breath in and is like, okay. The parents said this is nothing like this had ever happened with wow. this child, it was totally out of the blue for them. And it's just like a very heartwarming story, and also so fortunate that there was somebody on that flight who knew what to do. So, everyone's lauding Nurse Panzino as a hero. I feel like there, you got to get some free miles. Out of this, right? If you're like a nerd, if you save a life on a Spirit Air, I mean, at least maybe they don't charge you for your luggage anymore. Yeah. Or like on your next <laughs> flight, like they'll check your bags for free. Whatever, like the, the gold standard of the Spirit airline experience is, it should go now to Tamara Panzino.
2: They should invent first class on Spirit just just for her. <laughs> she just gets her own row. <laughs> they
0: just take the front yeah. row of coach, they block <laughs> it out, and they just like say, "This is for you, uh, Tamara, after your amazing life-saving uh, efforts." And that, my friends is the best news that we heard all week. All right, let's uh, welcome our first guest on over to the program. He frequently appears on the Today Show, where he reviews and recommends books for them. He's also the author of the best-selling children's book, How to Be a Pirate. And his writing has appeared in the New York Times, The Atlantic, and lots of other places, The New York Times Book Review called his new memoir, Dirtbag Massachusetts, an endearing and tattered catalog of one man's transgressions and the ways in which it is our sins far more than our virtues that make us who we are. Isaac Fitzgerald, welcome to Livewire. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I do not think I have heard one interview with you regarding this book that has not started In the exact place that we are also going to start because it's the beginning of the book and it kind of perfectly sets the tone Uh, You write your parents were married when they had you They were just married to different people at the time Uh, What I'm curious about is um, do you remember when you learned that fact and and what that felt like for you?
3: Yes, I I mean again The whole book is about stories and the stories we were told and the stories we tell ourselves. But I can kind of remember the first time I heard the story, which was I was pretty young. My parents, I think, were rather progressive. Again, they were part of the Catholic Worker, which is this Catholic group, but it's a very progressive Catholic group. And so I think they wanted me to have an understanding of who my siblings were. And so I had these half-siblings So at a very young age, they tried to explain to me that they were married when they had me just to different people. And part of that explanation was because they would show me photographs of their wedding that I was actually at. They got married when I was three years old. And there's a truck that's beat to crap that's just covered in toilet paper with like just married (laughs) cans hanging off the side. So that was like the the story that was told to me at a very young age. And at that time, I felt a warmth around it. It seemed like a nice, you know, you just, you're a young kid, you're seeing pictures of people being happy. Both of my siblings, I loved them so much. I looked up to them so much. So there was almost a warmth to the story. It was only in a few, like a few years later when things started to be a little bit more rocky that I started to understand, okay, that maybe marriage had consequences. That maybe my existence was part of what caused those consequences. And maybe I'd actually made my parents not happy, but unhappy. And that is when, especially I started having some real serious conversations with my mom at far too young an age that it started to kind of curdle on me.
0: And one of those consequences was that your parents' parents were pretty upset with them for kind of exploding the lives that they had before this because they were married. Was that part of what led to your parents and you, the three of you, kind of living amongst this, um, community of people who were unhoused while your parents were working at this place in Boston?
3: Yeah, that's ab- that's absolutely right. So basically, my parents lived with friends for a little while, uh, even before they were married. And again, these are memories of joy for me because I was surrounded by this rather loving community while we were in the city. It's only later when we made this move to kind of a a, a lonely north central Massachusetts that things took a turn. But we would live with friends. And and basically, my mother uh, had, had a son who was my brother, and my father had his daughter who is my sister, and their families did not take kindly to the decisions that they made, especially on my mother's side. So all of a sudden, there really was a lack of support. And of course, uh, their partners... Basically, we're like, all right, get out. And they also lost their kids in that move. So it did become just the three of us. And at that point, they were involved with the Catholic Church. They were involved with the Catholic worker. They had friends who worked in the community. And after about a year of living with someone who's very special to the family, uh, this man named Doc Holiday, he basically put them in touch with the Catholic worker. And that is when we moved into Haley House which is this incredible soup kitchen. We eventually end up at John Larry House, which is basically this apartment complex that's run by the Catholic worker. And it was a wonderful, wonderful childhood. I was surrounded by so many characters and so many loving people. But on paper, I know it looks like it's like, oh, he grew up in an unhoused living situation. That must have been so difficult. But those were actually the best years of my life.
0: We're talking to Isaac Fitzgerald, by the way. His latest book is Dirtbag Massachusetts. You write in the book about how Things really shifted for you around the age of eight when you actually left that environment that seems on paper to be fairly chaotic. And I want to talk about that more in a moment. First, though, we got to take this quick break here on Livewire from PRX. Back in a moment. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. I didn't see you there. It's that time of year again. My seasonal allergies are back.
2: Oh, congratulations.
0: But also, it's our spring member drive, which is happening right now through May 17th.
2: Oh, I like that much more than seasonal allergies.
0: Yeah, if you are not yet a member of LiveWire's League of Extraordinary Listeners, well, now is the time to do it. Why? Well, because this League of Extraordinary Listeners uh, is what keeps the lights on over at LiveWire, Inc., uh, which is definitely not the association that we are part of probably a 501c3 they don't let me near any of the paperwork Mm -mm. or bookkeeping and it's really better that way point is we we are only able to keep doing this show because of support from our members and we would love it if you could join us in that right now plus there are all kinds of sweet perks including uh special discounted tickets to live recordings on-air shout outs exclusive content What we're Mm -hmm. here to talk about is you keeping LiveWire going. So head on over to LiveWireRadio.org to see the various member levels. It does not matter how much you are giving every month to LiveWire. It just matters that you do it because it goes a long way for us. So thank you.
1: Vacations, weddings, birthdays, and reunions. Oh, my, there's so much going on. Get the most out of your spring plans by stocking up on pre-alcohol now. Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Zebiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. Just remember to make z your first drink of the night, drink responsibly, and you'll feel your best tomorrow. Go to Zbiotics.com/slash. LiveWire to get 15% off your first order when you use LiveWire at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee, so if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com/livewire and use the code LiveWire at checkout for 15% off. Thank you to Zbiotics for sponsoring this episode and our good times.
0: Welcome back to Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello, and we are talking to Isaac Fitzgerald. His uh, latest book is Dirtbag Massachusetts, uh, detailing his life, although it's, it's described as a, a confessional. Uh, and we're going to get into that in a moment because it's not strictly a memoir. I mean, it really gets into a lot of personal stuff that um, I'm, I'm pretty impressed, actually, that you were able to write as honestly about a lot of this stuff as, as you were, Isaac. We were talking, though, before the break about how you spent your early years living in Boston uh, in an environment where there was uh, a lot of people that were very marginalized. Your parents were working with with people who were unhoused. And then you and your mom basically move out to uh, a town in kind of out in the middle of nowhere next to her parents, who it sounds like were still not okay with how you had come into the world because your existence had torpedoed your mom's existing marriage, basically. What was that like for you to go out
3: there? For me, that is really where I learned what we're talking about with that opening question. That is where I learned to feel real shame Mm. around my own very existence, basically, which was understanding that maybe my mother had had a better life before I came into hers. And I really, really internalized that. In Boston, there was community, there was camaraderie. It was uh, a very impoverished life, but it was actually at its heart still a very social life. When we moved to North Central Massachusetts, I want to be very clear. This is a beautiful part of the state and there's a lot of community out there and there's a lot of pride out there. But me and my mother weren't a part of that. We were very isolated. And so that is the first feeling that I think of or that the emotion that I feel when I think of that time in my life is loneliness. Mm. And kind of the only other people in her life and therefore in my life in that time were her parents who lived next door, who were very clear in how much they di- disapproved of the choices that she'd made and how her her life had basically gone since that. There was this sense of my mom, I think, as so many of us have in our hearts, she had this drive to get out of her hometown. And there she was years later with her parents kind of getting to say, I told you Mm. so, Mm -hmm. right there, living next door. So that just created a very difficult environment where my mother didn't have many people to turn to other than me. And that's when we started having these conversations where she was telling me things that an eight year old is not supposed to know. I became a crutch for her. And looking back on it, I can see that I was basically raising her instead of her raising me. Mm. We're
0: talking to Isaac Fitzgerald about his latest book, Dirtbag Massachusetts, about his uh, life growing up and and his young adulthood out in the world. Um, another thing that you write about in the book is that violence was uh, part of your life—violence from your parents directed at you, sometimes from you back at your parents—and then also you and your friends, like uh, forming a fight club. Like you went to see the movie Fight Club, and <laughs> sounds like you kind of walked out of the theater and was like, "Okay, we've found it." Uh, was that you trying to? get control of the violence that seemed like it was just kind of like in the air? Because I grew up in kind of a a rough part of the town that I grew up in, and I just remember violence was always like around the corner. Like if it was like an older kid wanted to eat you up, or some kid from another school, you were always just kind of trying to figure out, am I gonna get tested today? Mm. Like it really does a number on your brain.
3: No, but that's exactly right. Violence, especially in our households, and I'm not just speaking for myself, but so many of the children that I grew up with, it was, it could roll in like a storm. That's a perfect way to put it. It always felt like it was just around the corner. So you had no idea where it was coming from. And so when we started our fight clubs after watching the movie Fight Club, we were grasping. Of course, we wouldn't have said this at the time. At the time, we would have just said, oh, that looks fun as hell. And like Brad Pitt looks cool. Tyler Durden seems like the coolest dude on earth. Yeah, I want to wear aviator sunglasses that I stole from the gas station. (laughs) But in hindsight, I can so clearly see that we were desperate to control the violence in some form. This was our way of taking its power away, just creating a space where we all consented to it and therefore it was okay. The other thing I'll say about it is I also think we were desperate for friendship for a relationship, for camaraderie, dare I say, even love that we maybe weren't getting in our homes. And it's so clear to me now, of course, that book and then the movie that it's based on is a is satire. It's trying to point a finger at so many different toxic aspects of masculinity and how we're taught to be men in society. But when you're 16, that just goes right over your right. head. And again, we're just like, oh yeah, here we go. End of the world, want it. Fighting, yes, and, but, but in a way, I, I really do look back on it fondly.
0: Well, I had read that you kind of wanted this book, when you started out, to be— you've got a big section on the band, The Hold Steady, and that you were setting out to write a series of essays that were largely about pop culture, but then it sounds like every time you were trying to write about pop culture, you needed to delve into your childhood to give some context, and then that eventually told you, well, no, the book is actually about growing up and about my life, essentially?
3: That's absolutely right. For a very long time, if if the three of us were at a party, I would tell you the story of my childhood, and then I would tell you I will never write about it. Mm. That was—I was so— clear that that was not something I was ever going to write about and you know we could unpack that all day but that's for therapy not for radio <laughs> but at the end of the day when I sold this book it was it was supposed to be kind of like pop culture through a little bit of my own personal experience a little bit through that lens but nothing in the in the confessional that this book ended up being and and the reason that happened was I kept trying to write these essays and I kept finding that I'd write Three paragraphs. Well, to understand that, you got to understand that. Then three more. Well, to understand that, there's this thing that happened with my dad, and then I would look at it and I try to cut it all out. I try to. I was like, okay, that's the private stuff. Take that away. And then I realized I was weakening these pieces. That's when I called my editor up. At that point, I'd already sold the book probably two years before that. And I said, hey, I think this is going to be about my childhood. To which my editor responded, yeah, yeah, I've been waiting for you to figure that out. Um, and, and But I'm so happy that I did, which is like, you know, I don't have a lot of lessons. Like I think everyone can come to writing or making art in their own way. I don't think there's any tried and true way. But one thing I will say that has at least been true for me is the things I don't want to write the things I don't want to talk about, the things that I don't want to look directly at, those are usually where the most important stories are.
2: It's so interesting. You said at the very beginning of our conversation that the, it ended up that the book is about storytelling. I just wondered if you could say a little more about that, like in, in what ways are all these different parts of your life and your time in San Francisco and how are those framed as stories and stories that people tell each other in your mind now that you finish the book?
3: no and and now that it is it exists as a story itself which let's be honest is not even the whole you know my mother and my father have actually been incredibly supportive of this book sure. but i have this moment uh when my mom first read the book she's a very smart woman I told her i was like you don't have to read it you don't have to look at it we can pretend it doesn't exist she of course read it in a night <laughs> she had a lot of questions but you know one of the early ones first on was just Where's all the canoeing? Like, where's all the camping? You know, come on. Where's, we did some fun stuff. We did some fun stuff, too. And, and I realized in that moment, and I, and I explained it to her. I said, listen, the, the truth is, like, think of it like a block of wood. Think about it like a log. And, of course, Mom, you're going to carve a much different statue out of that log that I'm going to carve out of it, right? The the whole truth is there, but we can't put the whole log in the thing. So you're going to carve out something that probably has a little more canoeing, probably a little <laughs> more camping, but less maybe of this stuff that I'm actually focusing on. And I'm very lucky in that you really understood that in that moment. But to that point, this book is in of itself a story, which is to say not the whole truth. These are the things that I decided to focus on. These are the things I decided to highlight. So part of the book Part of the spirit of it, part of what I only found through writing, it's not something I set out to do, was recognizing how the stories that were told to me as a young child, very, very early, full of warmth and love. Then in the difficult times with my mother, jarring to the point of being scarring, to being incredibly hard, to being things that I carried when I didn't even realize I was carrying them. Those were the stories that were told to me, and they were the stories through which I told myself the story of who I was. Mm -hmm. And it was only through years of trying to run away from it, ignore it, and eventually, thankfully, through the help of therapy, look directly at it, that I started being able to tell myself my own stories. So that's the beautiful thing for me about reading, about writing, about books in general, is that they are these things that can make us feel less alone in the world they are there these incredible pieces of technology if you want to call it that we we see things that we maybe don't even know about ourselves reflected on the page or we feel things that we think only we have thought and we see them right there on the page it makes us feel so much less alone in the world Well, at the same time, you have to acknowledge that other people have their versions of the story, too. My mother's dirtbag Massachusetts would probably look very different than my dirtbag Massachusetts. But I want to make space and room for all of these different stories.
0: I think that's incredible that you're saying your parents have read the book, which, again, is just really unflinching. I mean, you describe and that they're that they're accepting of it, and, and, you know, I'm sure, like you said, they've got their own version of those events, but they can at least appreciate. I mean, they also sound like they're uh, lovers of literature and books. That's where you got it from. So if that's in their personality, they can appreciate what this book is. I mean, you tell this one story of, like, you're moving your father out to the part of Massachusetts where you and your mom have been living, and you're in different cars, and he basically tries to lose you and your mom on the freeway so he can go visit his mistress. hmm for one last time why do you think they stayed together with so much chaos and infidelity and trauma
3: was it for you that's such a great question i'll tell you if it was i appreciate their efforts but if anybody had bothered to ask me at the time i would have prayed for divorce <laughs> 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 and 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 that is the god's honest truth it's it's okay people get divorced all the time why not just put a stop to this and i think there's a lot of different reasons one i do think they love each other very much i think i think it's it's possible for people to have incredibly hard times and still love each other and I, and this is a big part of it too is i think when you're young, everything feels so big. Four years is half your life when you're eight years old. That's almost everything you know, which for a child, it feels really big. For an adult, it just feels almost like a blip. Mm-hmm. And that's, it's one of the first things my mom said to me when she read it. She said, I'm so sorry, which I felt like I'd been waiting to hear my whole life. And then she said, I had no idea you were carrying this. And it's so clear to me that she wanted to believe that I had just put it all behind just in the very same way that she had put it all behind. But to get to the point of why they're still married, I do, I believe they really love each other. I think they loved each other back then as complicated and difficult as that time period was. Now that I am approaching 40, I'm so happy they have each other. I'm watching them grow old. They are some of the world's best grandparents to my siblings' childrens. I'm so happy they're still
0: together. I wanted to ask you kind of as we wrap this up about the cover of the book. So it's it looks like it's a reference to what maybe people would call like the power fist. It's very iconic kind of form of resistance. It has a whole lot of different meanings and representations. But the cover of this book, it's like that fist is is crossing its fingers. And I'm just wondering if that a sort of a message from this book about an almost like a radical or like aggressive form of hope.
3: I love that reading of that. That's incredible. That's yes. I'm just going to say yes because you nailed it. But, but no, I, no, I have not articulated it that way, but I think that is at the core of what I was trying to get at. Um, and the crossed fingers for me is very much about cross your fingers. Let's hope. Good luck. But then I went and actually researched it. It actually comes from Roman times back before it was a Christian empire. They basically would ask people if they were Christian. And you would cross your fingers behind oh. your back when you said no, asking forgiveness from God for lying. Which, if you remember, as a kid, you could use to tell a lie oh, and yeah. you mm-hmm. cross your back. Oh, yeah. So that was part. I was thinking cross fingers for good luck. But then I remembered it. In a way, it is also cross your fingers is is linked to religion. So I was interested in that, the faith component of the book. And is also linked to am I telling a story or not. So mm-hmm. that for me was part of it. It's also very much a punk rock poster from like the zeitgeist bar that I worked at. Uh-huh. They only had black and white Xeroxes. Uh, but I'm going to end with your answer because <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to steal that, my man. And I'm going to use it from here on out. Yeah. I would like to believe that this book is about radical hope and that that cover really does a beautiful job of showing them.
0: Well, it is an intriguing cover and an even more intriguing book once people dive into it. It's Dirtbag Massachusetts. Isaac Fitzgerald, thanks for coming on the show, man. This was really, really illuminating.
3: Thank you both so much for having me. And thank you to everyone that takes the time to read the book. That was Isaac Fitzgerald right here
0: on LiveWire. His memoir, Dirtbag Massachusetts, is available now. Hey, special thanks this episode to Phyllis Fletcher of Seattle, Washington, and Ann Sue of Portland, Oregon. Phyllis and Ann are part of the LiveWire member community. They're generously supporting our program with a donation each month, which is a really big deal to us because it allows us to keep doing the program. So that makes it a huge deal. So a huge thanks this week to Phyllis and Ann for keeping LiveWire going. This is Livewire. Of course, each week we like to ask the listeners a question and in honor of Isaac Fitzgerald's deep misunderstanding of what Chuck Palahniuk was going for <laughs> with Fight Club, and I guess David Fincher, who directed it. Uh, we asked the listeners to tell us something that they completely misunderstood as a young person. Elena, you have been collecting these responses. What are you seeing?
2: Okay, this one, I totally had this same misconception, the same misconception that Tim had. Tim says... When I was a kid, I thought artists sang their songs live on the radio. I thought they came in once an hour to sing their songs at the station (laughs) so people could listen to them. I was always impressed at how they managed to sound the same every time. And I remember I thought – I told my babysitter that I couldn't believe that Cyndi Lauper could play Rick D's American Top 40, which I knew was recorded in Los Angeles, and then come to the Charleston, South Carolina radio station later in the day to play Shebop again. <laughs> my babysitter was like, uh –
0: I feel like you were already preparing for your life as a somewhat itinerant, somewhat performative writer, Uh. where you were just like, the logistics of this make no sense (laughs) to eight-year-old Elena Passarello. How how can she be in these two places at such a close amount of time?
2: I mean, I I guess that just really proves that I grew up in a house without a lot of records in it. (laughs) I probably would have figured it out if, if that had been the
0: case. I was too busy, just hunched over my radio, ready to switch it from the pop station to the Christian music station, because I wasn't really allowed to listen to non-Christian music. So I was mm. never at ease while listening to Cyndi Lauper or anybody else. I was down there, like, ready to change the station at a moment. So if I heard my dad coming down the stairs.
2: Aw. Uh,
0: all right, what's another misconception one of our listeners had as a young person?
2: Um, <laughs> Phil says, I grew up thinking Watergate was some kind of big dam. I guess it was just <laughs> damn big. <laughs> hey. <laughs> <Phil>. <laughs>
0: Rim shot. Out. Yeah, I could totally see that as a kid, just because you, you would hear the word Watergate so much, and if you missed the part about it being a, I guess, a hotel slash you know office complex, and there was no internet presumably at this time for right. this young person. So yeah, once that story gets in your brain, that it's just some kind of aqua feature. Yeah, you could really carry that around for a while.
2: And I bet kids today are very confused whenever there's a controversy. We just add gate to the end of it. Like, I wonder if they think that's some kind of like etymological, like Mm -hmm. Latinate kind of suffix, but really it's just this hotel thing that we associate. Right, like if
0: it would have been at the Holiday Inn, we would call everything in at the end. Right. What's something else that one of our listeners was a bit confused about when they were young?
2: I love this one from Susie. Susie says, as a little girl, I always thought the universal remote could actually control the entire universe.
0: (laughs) I think that Susie must be much younger than than I am because yeah. I still think that universal remote is kind of fancy. Like I remember that coming out. I want to say like in my twenties or something, and just or maybe that was just the first time I saw one, and I was like, "Wow, how'd they do that?"
2: I feel like it's always advertised, and few houses had it. So, it, like, of course, you wouldn't have a universal remote at your house, but if you, you know, went mm-hmm. to if you had the kind of family who shopped at whatever Circuit City, yes. then you could get.
0: When you went to your, like, friends whose family were a little fancier than yours, they might have that universal remote or something. Okay, one more uh, listener response before we get out of here.
2: Okay. Um, this I've saved this one just for you. Ashley says, I thought condominium was a bad word because it had the word <laughs> condom in it.
0: <laughs> I would have absolutely had that thought as a kid. Had I ever heard the word condominium, I would have assumed that that was something that was... Very fresh, as my mom would say. My mom was always describing things as fresh.
2: fresh. Maybe that's why we say condo, just to make it a little Mm, less, uh, more PG. Take out
0: some of the prophylactic (laughs) connotations. (laughs) Well, thank you to everyone who sent in a response to our question this week. Uh, We're going to have another question for next week's show, which we will reveal in just a bit. So stick around for that. In the meantime, this is Live Wire Radio. Let's invite our next guest onto the show. She's been featured on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert and was crowned the winner of 2019's New York Comedy Club Contest, which was shortly before she joined us on stage in Portland, Oregon, at the Alberta Rose Theater. That was back in 2020. Take a listen to this. It's the very funny Carmen Lagala right here on Live Wire.
5: Thank
4: you so much. Wow, thank you. uh, I'm feeling a little weird right now. My mom figured out how to use Facebook Messenger recently, which, yeah, I didn't know she could do that because this is the same month she printed an article off of the Internet and mailed it to me. (laughs) Pretty big leap through time for Renee. She uh, felt like that scene in Jurassic Park where the raptor figures out how to use the door handle. Oh, clever girl. All right. (laughs) This is the message she sent to me. She thinks I'm not getting enough nutrients from our sun's rays. So she sent, Carmen, make sure you're getting the D. <laughs> I was like, my mom is cool. Nice. She's a cool lady. She's a, she's a Christian lady. She believes in God. She likes to throw the sayings at me. She'll be like, let Jesus take the wheel. I'm like, he never drove. His blood is wine. That's a DUI. That's reckless. Reckless advice. Uh, I I don't believe in God. I do believe in aliens, though. <laughs> One of those cool people. Uh, I don't think they're on Earth yet, though. Although sometimes you see people walking around, right, Portland? You're like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> what? No way. I have friends who think that crop circles were caused by aliens. This is my favorite kind of person because you gotta believe then that aliens are losers. That they made it here, and that's their first choice? They're like, oh, we made it to Earth, what should we do? One of them's like, um, why don't we go into the agriculture? Make some shapes and some, some patterns? Huh? <laughs> I, I had to look up what caused crop circles, because I was, I was like, what is it, though, then? And I found out it started in England with two guys just pulling pranks a fun time for them. They did it for years. They didn't tell anyone until about 10 years in. One of them had a wife that thought that he was cheating on her. <laughs> I was like, I've been cheated on. That is way worse. Oh. <sighs> like you come home, you're like, where have you been night after night for so many years? Is it Susan? He's like, oh my God, no, you're going to laugh. <laughs> Classic misunderstanding. No, I've just been going into the field with Doug to to bend corn. <laughs> Is that a euphemism? Are you with Doug? I don't... So confused. I spend so much time on the internet. It's, it's a lot. I also... I love the WNBA. It's women's basketball. <laughs> like, Yeah. Like, it's awesome. I love it so much. So here's what I've been doing in my free time. It's the off season. Uh, I've been going onto the WNBA Instagram page and policing the comments. <laughs> it's like a volunteer position. Hold your applause. Because what you'll find in there, a lot of young men who hate women. They hate women's basketball, and they just talk trash in there. And I've made it my job to talk trash back at them on a personal level. <laughs> yeah. It's not hard. They didn't privatize it. They're all from New Jersey. You just go in, and they, they're like, women suck at basketball. And I'm like, well, learn how to land a kickflip, you little b-. It doesn't, doesn't have to be clever, just accurate. And I took it, I took it very far a couple of weeks ago. I went, and there was this one kid. He kept posting, uh, make me a sandwich on every single post. And I would have let it go, but he was spelling sandwich wrong. So I got really mad. I took screenshots of that, went into his Instagram, saw he had a girlfriend, sent her the screenshots. <laughs> Oops, <laughs> I don't know. And yes, yeah, job, a lot of free time with comedy. And she didn't respond. She, she just had like a single question mark. And I was like, oh my God, that is weird. I should probably say what I mean. I was like, ah, oh, yeah, sorry. It's uh, someone that you loves being mean to women online. <laughs> Thought you should know. She did not respond, so I clicked on her Instagram, saw that uh, she doesn't graduate high school until 2023. (laughs) Oh, no. I feel like I did the right thing, but on the other hand, I'm like, who am I that I'm just barging into her DMs? Like, what are you doing with him? You should break up. He's immature. (laughs) I'm 34, so. (laughs) Should listen to me. Felt very creepy, felt very creepy about it. So I checked up on both of them two days later and they deleted all the pictures of each other. I was like, oh, I broke them up. (gasps) The power, yeah, did you know you can make a difference in this world? (laughs) Oh my gosh, right? Oh, I don't know what sport uh, you're a fan of, but what are you doing in the off season, huh? Are you breaking up children online? That's what I'm willing to do for the New York Liberty. I don't get how you parent right now in the, with the internet the way it is, because you gotta you gotta teach your kids about weirdos on the internet. But then, like, am I making it into the conversation? <laughs> Parents are like, no, you gotta watch out. These people are creeps and weirdos. They're gonna send you pictures. They're oh uh, no, there's so much out there that you don't even. Also, there's gonna be this lady. <laughs> yeah, oh, uh, she just wants what's best for you. So, <laughs> don't respond. Just listen to what she has to say. That's good. I love the internet. I love TV. I keep watching true crime. Big fan. Big fan of the genre. Are we true crime fans? <laughs> Three people. Nice. I, I'm such a big fan of true crime. They say that people keep telling me, they're like, women, women Women love true crime. I'm like, well, it keeps happening to us. So more of a keeping tabs thing at this point, right? It's crazy because guys will still have the audacity to be like Women don't watch sports I'm like we binge watch the most dangerous sport of all That's what true crime is Just the stakes are higher (laughs) Like I'm sorry did your ball go out of bounds (laughs) (laughs) Um, Kelly's been missing for three weeks She is the most out of bounds All right, my name is Carmen You guys are so great Thank you so much
0: Carmen LaGala, everybody. That was Carmen LaGala, recorded in front of a live audience at the Alberta Rose Theater here in Portland, back in March of 2020. You can find her on Twitter, at Carmen LaGala, that's L-A G-A-L-A, at Carmen LaGala. And I'm at Luke Burbank, here with at Elena Pasarello. We've got to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere because when we come back, we will hear some music from No No Boy. LiveWire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season, formerly known as T Chai Tay. Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest. And they make one-of-a-kind kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream earl gray. Use the code LIVEWIRE, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to LiveWire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. And our musical guest this week is a songwriter and scholar born in Nashville, Tennessee. Julian Safaridi has created the project No-No Boy. He did this while he was transforming his doctoral research on Asian American history into concerts and albums and films. His latest album as part of the project, 1975, was released through Smithsonian Folkways, and it's been hailed by NPR as one of the most insurgent pieces of music you will ever hear. Let's take a listen to this. It's our conversation with Julian Saporiti, a.k.a. No-No Boy, recorded back in April. What what song are we going to hear? We're going
6: to close this show with a a song called Boat People. Uh, The boat people were folks uh, from Vietnam, Southeast Asia, who after the fall of Saigon, or the reunification of the country, depending on your point of view, uh, they were fleeing re-education camps, um, had they been on the wrong side of the war, uh, death in some cases, and almost a million of these folks uh, had to get out of you know their country, the only country that they'd ever called home because of this fear of death, not unlike a lot of folks from Central America or the Middle East these days, uh, in Europe even, the Ukraine. They were just refugees, and about a million of these people got on these rickety little fishing boats meant for a crew of 10 they stuffed 200 folks onto onto these boats, just just anything to get out. About half of those people died on the bottom of the South China Sea. It's a, it's a it's a it's a history that's too big, and and we teach history too big. I think you know just whether it's dates 1975 or a million people or um, you know 200 people even. So this story, like a lot of my songs, tries to go into history from a personal level, uh, a level where. We just take one story. This is, this is almost verbatim the, these lyrics I heard on old Canadian broadcasts um, back in the 70s. One of these boat people, a Dr. Tran, and yeah, his story is worth a movie, but uh, you'll have to settle for a song tonight. Hmm. Uh, thank you so much for having us. It's called Boat People. Thank you. This is No
0: No Boy. I'm Livewire.
5: The doctor left on a boat He'd never seen the snow Or felt it in his hand Sail until you see Dry land I can't get off the Shiny safe house and covered track. South China Sea Came across a Thai pirate ship Scavenging Ripped the doctor from his kid He swam back to his son Held tight to his daughter
1: Drifting through
5: the night As the daylight broke A mountain in the dawn Off the Malaysian coast so long I can't get off the news I can't get off my phone My mother came here too That was 40 years ago So if you see somebody's cold That's No No Boy!
0: That was No No Boy right here on Livewire. His latest album, 1975, is available right now via Smithsonian Folkways. All right, before we get out of here, a little preview of next week's episode. We are going to be talking music on the show, Elena, and not just any music, rock music yeah. with, with Nikki Six <laughs> from Motley Crue. He's going to talk about his days growing up in various small towns where he had big dreams of playing rock and roll. Uh, those dreams, it turns out, came true. Motley Crue has sold over 100 million records, about 10 million of them just to me yeah. in middle school. <laughs> I
2: was just going to make that joke.
0: I did 10 million, you did 10 million, so that's like 20 million between the two of us.
2: 20% of the crew's
0: revenues. That's why he agreed to come on the show, because he knew we had both personally supported the crew back in the day. (laughs) Uh, Then we're going to talk to Todd Haynes. He is the legendary filmmaker. Uh, We're going to talk about his documentary, The Velvet Underground, which documents that band. Now, The Velvet Underground did not sell 100 million albums, but. They have had a huge cultural impact, so we're going to hear about that. And then we're going to hear some actual music from the very, very talented Melanie Charles. Her album, Y'all Don't Really Care About Black Women, is a love letter to the underappreciated labor of black women in music. It's going to be amazing, so you want to tune in for that. Plus, we're going to be looking to get your answers to our listener question for the week. Elena, what are we asking the LiveWire listeners for next week's show?
2: We are dying to know your go-to karaoke song. Oh, (laughs) gosh.
0: I was recently doing some karaoke at this, like, campout, and then the next day, because the people at the campout had set up the equipment, they were playing back some of the karaoke from the night before, including a song that I did. And it was sobering
2: Oh they Alina. recorded you
0: It was recorded and we were listening <laughs> back to it And it was Yow. It did not sound The next day the way It sounded in my head the night before mm. But anyway Alright we want to get your go to karaoke <laughs> song You can hit us up on Twitter or Facebook We're at Radio. Pretty much everywhere on social media Alright that's going to do it for this week's episode Of LiveWire Huge thanks to our guests Isaac Fitzgerald Carmen Lagala, and No No Boy. Livewire is brought to you in part by
2: Alaska Airlines. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sebchenko. Our assistant editor is Trey Hester. Our marketing manager is Paige Thomas. And our production fellow is Tunvi Kumar. Our house band is Ethan Fox Tucker, Sam Tucker, Ayal Alves, and A Walker Spring, who also composes our music. Molly Pettit is our technical director and mixer, and our house sound is by D. Neil Blake.
0: Additional funding provided by the Marie Lamfrom Charitable Foundation. LiveWire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we'd like to thank members Anne Sue of Portland, Oregon, and Phyllis Fletcher of Seattle, Washington, who also happens to be a member of the LiveWire board. If you want more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast, Head on over to LiveWireRadio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole LiveWire crew. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of LiveWire delivered